Welcome to the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics. Welcome back, and today we're going to be talking about gallstones and the problems that gallstones can cause. There are complications. And we have again with us the HPB surgeon from Steve Beaker Academic Hospital, Dr. Henry Pretorius. Dr. Pretorius, are all gallstones the same? Actually, there are three types of, of gallstones. Uh, they, those could either be they are characterized by the cholesterol content. Um, so you get cholesterol stones, and then you get pigment stones. And then there's this entity they're called mixed stones. It's basically both. That's quite rare. Um, so I wouldn't call that a type. Uh, I just call that a mix of the two. And then the third type would be sludge. Mm. And why do gallstones form? So... Um, so each type of gallstone forms in a different way. So I think we, we could just start with um, saying cholesterol stones, um, which, which are formed by three, in three phases actually. The f- first phase will be the supersaturation of cholesterol in the bile. Um, this is mostly due to over secretion of cholesterol into the biliary system. Um, what happens is the cholesterol is secreted um, into the uh, phospholipid cholesterol vesicle, which is found in the bile, and then there are um, what's called missiles. And these uh, missiles um, contain cholesterol bile salts uh, um, and phospholipids. But they have a very high affinity for um, phospholipids, and then they, they draw the phospholipids out of the vesicle before they draw all the cholesterol. And um, this causes supersaturation of cholesterol within the vesicle, especially when there's over-secretion of cholesterol. That's the first phase. Um, the second phase is where these little uh, supersaturated vesicles start nucleating with one another. And therefore, for that process to happen, you have to have supersaturated bile. And then your third phase will be when they grow. So when these can either they can either nucleate onto another one, another one, or the different little nucleated cholesterol gallstones can then fuse together and form a bigger stone. And what are pigment stones, and how are they relevant to us in clinical practice? They well, one they are a different color. Um, they are actually brown or black, which are the two type of pigment stones. And these two are actually quite different. So your black pigment stone is your classical pigment stone. Be- people would talk about. They're actually smaller stones, they're speculated and they are quite brittle. So if you press them, they will almost become dust if you if you should squash them. Um, they are associated with one of two things, either hemolytic disorders or liver dysfunction. Unconjugated bilirubin in the bile um, precipitates with calcium, um, which leads to uh, a stone that forms, it's called a calcium bilirubinate stone that forms. And these are the pigment stones that they are based on. So in your hemolytic disorders, there's too much production of bilirubin in the bloodstream and the liver cannot cope with conjugate everything. Therefore, there's unconjugated bilirubin in the bile. Whereas with cirrhosis, the liver doesn't conjugate by function. Its function is decreased and doesn't conjugate enough bile. Therefore, there's also an increased unconjugated bile in the Bilirubin in the bile. And brown stones? So they are also the type of pigment stones where there's the unconjugated bilirubin that precipitates with calcium forming calcium bilirubinate. 
but it requires because it's not an overproduction or too much unconjugated volume it's, it requires a specific enzyme that helps this this process to happen and this is called beta um, glucuronidase so for you to have um, your body doesn't produce the enzyme so that is actually produced by bacteria such as E. coli so for you to form brownstones, there has to be an underlying infection. And these, the bacteria form the precipitation and they, actually the dead bacteria also form part of the stone where their cell membranes after they've died form part of the stone which makes it nice and soft. So it's actually pliable, this stone. So patients who develop brownstones have to have some form of an underlying either obstruction because obstruction leads to stasis leads to bacterial overgrowth and infection or have to have instrumentation into the biliary tree or a sphincterotomy. So brownstones are usually found in patients who have underlying stones and chronic cholecystitis. Patients with gallbladder dysfunction which is an entity where the gallbladder doesn't contract well and doesn't secrete all its, um, excrete all its bile into the GIT and that can also lead to brownstone formation or patients who have had a cholecystectomy and possible previous sphincterotomy at ERCP these patients are predisposed to developing primary bile duct stones and primary bile duct stones are usually soft brown pigment stones You mentioned biliary sludge, what is that? So biliary sludge is basically phase 1 and 2 of cholesterol stones with a mixture of also calcium bilirubinate um, these patients usually don't have uh, um, increased cholesterol or these things but for some reason some people tend to form sludge and it does seem to be part of the path towards developing stones so it's a mixture of cholesterol crystals and calcium bilirubinate and a mucin gel matrix um, and this is usually found either idiopathically in patients and they usually present with pancreatitis and that's why you look for it or in the hospital setting patients who have been prolongedly fasted or people in ICU on TPA. What would be the complications of gallstones? Gallstones complicate by either obstructing or becoming infected um, and usually infection is preceded by a degree of obstruction whether being complete or incomplete or intermittent. So your common complications of gallstones are when you talk about infection would be cholecystitis in the gallbladder where it has a little bit of obstruction of the, of the cystic duct, there's stasis and there's bacterial overgrowth and then that relieves but there's still infection is preceded by obstruction. Or you can have obstructive jaundice where the stone moves into the bile duct itself, the common bile duct, and obstructs um, near the ampulla or in the intrapancreatic portion, and that can give you jaundice. If that becomes infected, it will become cholangitis. And I think those are the three most important biliary complications of gallstones. And then don't forget pancreatitis, which is when the stone passes through the pancreatic portion and causes intermittent obstruction of the pancreatic duct that can lead to a severe inflammatory response of pancreatitis. And what are some of the more uncommon or less frequent uh, complications of gallstones? 
um, it patellothiasis, which can sometimes small stones can reflux up into the biliary tree and get stuck there, can lead to cholangitic abscesses or obstruction within the liver itself. But um, other things that you might hear on ward rounds, which are not very common, but people tend to always cite, are things like Maritzi syndrome and Goldstein ileus. Um, I think Goldstein ileus, you have to remember, it's a large stone that you wrote it into the duodenum and gets stuck in the GIT, usually at ligament of trites or the ileocecal valve, and they present with signs of bowel obstruction. Other thing like Maritzi syndrome is where the stone, which is in the Hartman's pouch of the gallbladder, compresses onto the bile duct, externally compresses and causing obstruction, obstructive jaundice without a stone within the bile duct. What is the difference between acute cholecystitis and acute cholangitis? There's different areas within the biliary tree that can become infected. So, acute cholecystitis will be infection or inflammation of the gallbladder itself, and then cholangitis will be the, the biliary tree. So, um, cholangitis per se has got the element of obstructive jaundice to the infection. If you have obstructive jaundice, this cannot be due to cholecystitis. Um, and please do not confuse the two entities. They are entities on their own. So cholecystitis is when the stone obstructs the cystic duct, you get inflammation of the gallbladder and bacterial overgrowth and infection of the gallbladder only. Cholangitis is extremely dangerous and a patient can die from cholangitis. With ascending cholangitis, where they get bacteremia and septicemia and then eventually death. So the approach to your patient, I think where the patient comes in with right upper quadrant pain and raised inflammatory markers should be, is this cholangitis? If not cholangitis, then it's cholecystitis. Is there a guideline that you could recommend to our listeners for this? Um, yes, um, there are uh, what, they, what we call the Tokyo guidelines, which, are, which is quite a very comprehensive guideline on how to diagnose and manage both acute cholecystitis as well as how to diagnose and manage cholangitis. There's um, also an app that you can download onto your smart device that can assist you in, in, in using the Tokyo guidelines. The important thing about the Tokyo guidelines is that it also puts the patient into a um, severity um, of disease. Um, the principle is that you should exclude the most severe disease before they become less severe. By diagnosing mild cholangitis, for example, you have to exclude severe and moderate severe cholangitis. Can you maybe tell us a little bit more about the investigation and management of acute cholangitis? So to investigate acute cholangitis, once again, we, we first want to diagnose cholangitis. So we want to show that there are signs, one, of obstruction. So you look at your patient, is the patient jaundice, do they have dark urine, do they have pale stools? Um, on the blood results, do they have an abnormal um, liver function um, with a raised ductal enzymes and erased um, conjugate bilirubin. Um, and once you've got this thought that the patient got obstructive jaundice, you want to see do they have infection. So you look at your inflammatory markers such as your CRP, your white cell count. Um, does the patient have a fever? Do they have rigors and chills at the moment? These will all be in keeping with infection. And uh, once you have 
those two elements you can also look at imaging features and therefore we use an ultrasound and we look for dilated uh, bile ducts to be in keeping with an obstruction and also help us tell us where the level of obstruction is in such a patient. If the patient has signs of obstruction and signs or features of in, in, infection, then a diagnosis of cholangitis is made. How would you grade the severity of cholangitis? So then, like we said, once the diagnosis has been made, um, we now look at signs and symptoms or features of organ failure or syst systems that have failed. Um, there are specific um, systems that we look at for severe cholangitis. These would be your cardiovascular system, if the patient requires anotropic support. Neurological system, if the patient has got a, um, his consciousness is, has been is down, it's got the range level of consciousness. Um, you look at the patient's respiratory um, function. So this we measure what we call the PF ratio, which basically looks at how much oxygen are you taking in and what is your partial pressure in your arteries. So you need a blood gas for that. And if the PF ratio is more than 300, it seems to be normal. If it's less than 300, your lungs are, are struggling to keep up. We look at the renal functions by looking at what is the renal output or looking at the creatinine of more than 200. Um, for liver function itself, we look at the INR and for coagulopathy, we look at the platelet level. So if patients don't have signs of organ dysfunction, does that automatically make them a mild? No. So if they have an organ dysfunction, this would make them severe. But if not, they could still be moderate severe, which puts them at risk of becoming severe. And the moderate severe would then have other features of a severe inflammatory response. This is, is characterized by either a low or a high white cell count. So a white cell count less than 4 or more than 12. If the temperature is very high, above 39, but then there are certain other predictors that can also say this patient's at risk of becoming worse. If the bilirubin is very high, like more than 50. If the albumin has dropped by more than 75% of normal values. And if the patient is older than 75 years of age. If they are not moderate severe, only then can we call them mild cholangitis. And how does this classification help you to determine the management of the patient? To get to that point, we'll have to look at what is the management of cholangitis. And the management of cholangitis would be basically three elements. One, support the patient's organ systems. Make sure the patient is well. What is the level of care we're going to give to, to do that is going to be determined by the severity of disease. So if the patient is severe, the patient requires ventilatory support. I would put that patient in ICU. So they will either go to ICU or high care. Patients who have got a moderate severe um, cholangitis requires a very intensive monitoring and those patients need to go to a high care unit. Whereas patients who are mild cholangitis can go to the normal ward. The next thing of the management is we're going to manage once we've got their organ support and we've got them monitored, we also want to give them antibiotics, which I can give in any level of care but that should be started as soon as possible. Within an hour of making the diagnosis, the patient should be on an antibiotic. Once you've got the patient on antibiotic, you want to drain the biliary system. The severity of disease will determine the timing. And what would be some ways of draining the biliary tree? 
this is also where the ultrasound comes in which was important which would have told me the etiology so what is there a stone stuck there or not is it a stricture or a mass and what is the level of obstruction so we have basically two ways in which we can drain the biliary system one endoscopically and two percutaneously that's if we don't count major surgery in these patients we try to avoid that in this at this stage so if we go percutaneously we call that a percutaneous transhepatic drainage procedure which can either be a cholecystostomy or it can go into the biliary tree itself like with a PTC and the other way endoscopically is called an ERCP and for stones what would be your most common way of treating them so as this is the topic um, we would prefer to treat stones via ERCP as I can also extract the stones so I think before we leave acute cholangitis, there's a term that I've come across, a, a cholangitic liver function test. So a cholangitic liver function test, uh, when we say that, one, the, the LFT must have an obstructive picture. Therefore, the conjugated bilirubin fraction must be at least 70% of the total fraction of bilirubin. That tells us it's obstruction and the ductal enzymes are usually elevated. These are the ALP and the GGT. But this merely states obstructive jaundice. There is an entity called the cholangitic LFT, and this is when the infection within this obstructed system has started to affect the hepatocytes surrounding the biliary tree. And this leads to an elevation in the AST level of more than 150. When, if you see that entire picture of an obstructive jaundice picture with a raised AST, but a fairly normal ALT, you should think this might be a sign of cholangitis. How would you approach acute cholecystitis? We will approach it a lot like we did cholangitis. Um, one, we make the diagnosis. Um, first, by excluding cholangitis, the patient can't be jaundiced. Two, we manage with antibiotics and then we grade it. We can use Tokyo guidelines to grade it in a similar fashion to what we graded cholangitis. Slightly different parameters, you guys can look at it on the app. These patients don't have obstructive jaundice, so they don't require a drainage procedure, but the definite procedure would be a cholecystectomy. And this needs to be planned as either early or a delayed after six week cholecystectomy. There's an entity acalculus cholecystitis. Um, how does that occur and is the management different? So acalculus cholecystitis is cholecystitis but there's no stones um, the, so it's a it's a very um, specific entity you do not find this in a patient coming from home this is found in a sick patient patient who has um, usually on TPN fasting their bile um, is not stimulated and so the, the gallbladder don't, doesn't contract and they get stasis of bile without the mechanical obstruction and this stasis can lead to secondary inflammation and infection these patients a lot of times are very ill in ICU, on anotropic support, etc. And they've got poor blood supply to the gallbladder itself. And a lot of times this can become gangrenous. So the management of acalcus cholecystitis would be to start feeding the patient antibiotics and usually an emergency cholecystectomy. One of the complications that you mentioned was biliary ileus or gallstone ileus rather. Um, what is that and how should we treat those patients? This is when a fairly large gallstone erodes from the gallbladder usually through the fundus into the duodenum 
And as it moves along the GIT, there are certain points of narrowing the ligament of trites and the ileocecal valve where the stone can get stuck. These patients then present with obstruction of the GIT, which is an emergency in itself. Some of them may be septic and have to go rush to theatre, but a lot of them will present with, a, with small bowel obstruction. The management of small bowel obstruction would be to put an azogastric tube, tube drain and then scan the patient to get a diagnosis. Also remember to put an IV line and fluid resuscitate the patient. On the CT scan you will probably see this big target sign where there's a stone stuck in dilated bowel proximal and collapsed bowel distally and which would make the diagnosis and a lot of times you'll see air in the ability system. And the definitive treatment? So these patients with a gallstone ileus will have to go to theatre um, and the obstruction needs to be relieved by physically opening the bowel, removing the stone and closing the bowel. I think we'll chat about biliary pancreatitis in another podcast. Um, so after all of these complications you've spoken about, should we be routinely removing gallbladders in all patients that have gallstones? No. The important thing is that even though we talk about all these complications, in the greater aspect of things, they're actually fairly rare to occur. If you take the fact that about 40% of our general population has gallstones, um, you can't go and remove all their gallbladders. Most of them don't even know that they have them. In an asymptomatic patient, there's about a 1% chance per year of the patient developing a symptom from the gallstones, never mind a complication. And once they have symptoms, there's a 20% chance over 15 years of that gallstones causing a complication. So if you take that into consideration, it's a very, very, very small proportion of patients with gallstones that actually get complicated. What do you mean symptoms of gallstones? So the most common symptom of gallstone would be biliary colic, which is basically intermittent pain that the patient has in the right upper quadrant when the gallbladder contracts against a stone that's blocking the cystic duct. Um, and that itself is not really a complication. What do we also have to remember that when we want to remove a gallbladder, any surgery comes with a risk of complications as well. In general, your complication rate of a cholecystectomy would be less than 1%. So 0.5 to 0.8% of patients for a cholecystectomy would develop a form of a complication. Wound sepsis, biliary pathology, strictures, etc. That is higher than the chance of a patient with gallstones that is asymptomatic to develop a complication. And therefore, asymptomatic, incidentally found gallstones should not be operated. You've given us a lot of information today. Would yeah, well, I think first thing first, it's common and all stones do not need to be operated. If the stones are symptomatic, they should be referred to a, a specialist surgeon. But if the patient has signs of infection, right upper quadrant pain or jaundice, this becomes emergency. Cholangitis kills and these patients should be urgently referred to a hospital near where they can manage the patient. Good, thank you very much for a nice overview of gallstone disease and I'm sure we'll be hearing from you some more in the future. Thanks. This edition of the Students of Surgery podcast has been produced 
by TuxFM. Visit www.tuxfm.co.za for young, fresh and relevant content. That was another edition of the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics. 